Good morning. Good to see you all. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, I say this every time, so if you're uh, a regular here, it's a broken record, but super glad you're here. If you're new, um, I know that coming to a church for the first time is something that brings about a lot of anxiety, whether you're a Christian or not, so glad you took that step. Um, one more small announcement to just kind of uh, bring your attention to. The big move is coming up. Um, and I thought about asking the question, who has ever been new to this church to try to be a silly and make you all raise your hands? But just keep that in mind that all of you at one point or another have been new to this church and new to this city. And so with the big move coming up, it's one way that we can just um, serve the people around us, serve people that are in our church, serve people that aren't in our church. Um, and what we do is we go out on September 1st when most of the lease cycles in the city are kind of up and we go and we help people move. We help strangers move. We help people in this church move. Um, and we all do that together. Um, and so that's coming up, and really just want to encourage you to think about taking the day off for that, or a half day off for that. I, th- I think it's on a Thursday. Does anyone know? Top of their head, Thursday. Fri- Friday, even better. See, Friday. You can have a long weekend. Um, take the Friday off. Uh, you can register online, cobrookline.org slash events. Um, we're going to do that, kind of facilitate that through CGs, but we still want you to register just so we have an idea of who's going where and how many people we have. Um, so we'd really just want to encourage you to do that. Don't fall into the trap of thinking like this is something that other people in the church will do or that this is like a sub-smaller event that only a portion of the church will do. No, this is meant to be all of us together serving our neighbors in a really tangible way. Um, I can tell you for sure people have come to this church because of the big move. And I can tell you even more than that, people have been saved because that initial point of contact was made through people at this church. So really encourage you to register, really encourage you to think about taking a day off and, and serving in that way. So, um, Genesis 39. Genesis has been absolutely wild. They're wilding out there. It's absolutely nuts. So you have these first three chapters uh, that kind of encapsulate like God's creation and how things came to be and the creation of mankind and uh, how sin entered into the world. And then it just, uh, that was crazy too, but then it just goes absolutely crazy. It's like a drama, right? From this massive flood to all these people um, just continuously Uh, lying, continuously sleeping with other people they shouldn't be sleeping with, death, destruction, all these things are happening. Um, And Genesis 39 is no exception to that. We get a detailed story that is both parts amusing, uncomfortable, intriguing, and all the above. So we talk about that today. Um, Small moment of of vulnerability. Uh, My deepest insecurity, and yes, I mean this, my deepest insecurity is being abandoned. Uh, There's a lot that goes into that. It's a longer story that involves my whole life, as I'm sure you all can understand, mostly around my teenage years. Um, And and, uh, uh, I've done a lot of reflecting and processing and praying through that, and I'm in a good spot now. But what was interesting is I didn't realize that that was even an insecurity of mine until I started dating Ashlyn, who is now my my wife. Um, And it had nothing to do with Ashlyn, uh, nothing to do with Ashlyn at all. But whenever we were dating, we had a fight or disagreement, which wasn't that often. I, I realized that, like, I kind of always had this mindset, like, is this, is this going to work? Are we going to work out? Not because it was particularly bad, not because one of us mishandled it or anything like that, but rather because out of this deep insecurity, my first reaction when things kind of tick south were, are you going to leave? And because of that, sometimes, like, mid-conversation when we're dating, like, I'll just interrupt her and be like, do you still want to date me? Like, out of nowhere. And, like, this bled over into my marriage, like, for the first year or two, right? Like, same kind of thing. We would have, like, a fight or disagreement and go to bed kind of tense, didn't really work it out. In the middle of the night, just roll over. Do you still love me? She's like, no. (laughs) Come on, you guys laughing at my insecurities? What's up with that? No, she'd say yes. And as comical as that may seem, 
like underneath all that, yes, like lots of wounds and, and things that have happened, but underneath all of that is just this thought of, do you want to be with me? Are you going to be with me? And if I knew she'd be with me, then I was convinced we could face whatever situation was in front of us, right? whatever fight or disagreement or um, circumstance that wasn't our doing, that just kind of was in front of us. And if I knew our relationship was going to be okay, to a certain extent, like it didn't matter what happened, right? because I could count on her to be there. The assurance of her presence, for me, was more powerful in our relationship than the assurance of a solution. The promise of her staying with me, of her presence, was better for our relationship than a solution or a fix to the circumstance. And I think a lot of you know what I mean, right? Whether you're uh, approaching a conversation and you know for sure that no matter how that conversation goes, no matter how difficult it is, no matter what things are said, like things are still gonna be okay and this relationship's still gonna be intact versus the situation where you enter a conversation and you're like, I, I don't know how this is gonna go. I don't know how this is gonna end. You approach those conversations very differently, right? There is power and presence with people we know this. And if this is true of merely our human relationships, how much more true is this when it comes to our relationship with God? How much more power is there in his presence? How much more power is there in his presence to overcome whatever thing you walked in with? Whether it was something with uh, great joy and celebration and excitement, or something with great sorrow and a heavy broken heart, or sadness or tears. And our story today in Genesis 39 shows us that the presence of God was with Joseph. And it was with Joseph in in an incredible way that helped him get through ups and downs, highs and lows. And if you've been tracking with us through Genesis at all, this is kind of refreshing. It's kind of refreshing because um, he's kind of, well, to start off, he's kind of like the final character Genesis zooms in on, right? Abraham, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. He's kind of the final character we get an in-depth view on for the next few weeks. And every person we looked at so far, whether it's those people I mentioned, or Adam, or Eve, or Noah, uh, or anyone else, they all have major shortcomings, major sins. And Joseph does too, I'm sure, but for whatever reason, the author uh, decides not to include them in the way that he did with the other characters, or the other patriarchs. And just to catch us up, since it's been a few weeks, um, Jacob's story came to a close a few weeks ago, and the, the, the focus shifted from him to his son, Joseph. And if you remember, two, three weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on um, Genesis 37, and we saw that Joseph, he had a dream, right? He had a dream that um, he would rule over his brothers, which he had 11 of them, and and they would kind of um, be subservient to him, and he would reign over them, like any good brother would do. Of course, he goes and tells them about that. And like any typical other brothers would do, they didn't just let it go, right? They didn't just sweep it under the rug. They took action against that, and they put him in a pit. They threw him in a pit. Uh, But then eventually they decide, instead of just leaving him there, they pulled him out of the pit and sold him into slavery. With his brother Judah saying, what profit is it for us if we kill him? Let us sell him instead. And so this is where our passage picks back up. Joseph is 17 when he's sold into slavery, and over the course of the next 22 years of his life, and over the course of the next four weeks for us, we get a really in-depth view of a man who's incredibly faithful of a man who trusts God, of a man who's very aware of the presence of God in his life. 
We'll see him be extremely resilient in his faith and trust God in circumstances that are just kind of like landmine after landmine, temptation after temptation, opportunity after opportunity to wander away from God or to kind of drift from the presence of God. And honestly, when you think about this kind of chapter, this particular chapter, like it's, it's a story that's probably familiar to you if you grew up in church, if you've been around church for any amount of time. And it's really easy for us to kind of hone in on like the sexual temptation that's present in this chapter because obviously like the most amount of ink is spent on that. But what we actually see is an emphasis not just on the temptations that Joseph faces, but uh, rather on the presence of God that sustains him through those things, that sustains him through those temptations through those highs and through those lows in the whole chapter and the rest of his life. Just look at how the chapter starts and ends. Verse two, it says the Lord was with Joseph. Verse three, the Lord was with him. Then it ends, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. And so don't skim past that too quickly. I know we kind of read that and we're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, interestingly, that's the only time this phrase is used in the entirety of Genesis. All the characters we've covered so far. Yes, the Lord was with them. We do believe that. But it's interesting that the author at this particular moment, or God in some particular way, decided to be with Joseph. And so what we see in this story is, yes, a man standing strong against temptation. We'll talk a lot about that. But more than that, we see God's presence with Joseph. That God was with Joseph in the highs and the lows. In moments of slavery and in moments of success. In moments of much and of little. And so we see that the presence of God empowers Joseph to face these things. And that's our main point. That's kind of our big takeaway for the day. There is power in the presence of God for whatever you are facing. There's power in the presence of God for whatever you are facing. It's the presence of God in your life that empowers you to face the things that are in front of you, whether it's success, temptations, or sufferings. And now, this may sound intuitive, but it's not. This may sound super simple and super obvious, but it's not. Let me show you why. Because all of us are here. If you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, we'll claim that God is with us. We believe that to be true. We know that to be true. We can do and we can face anything with God on our side, right? Jesus himself says, with God, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can face any great dark moment, any dark season with God, any heartbreaking circumstance. Yet functionally, when those things hit, what do we do? When those dark clouds roll in, when you get that phone call that you've been dreading or you have that meeting invite that just sends tingles down your spine and you know it's gonna go horribly, what do you do? Functionally, we want answers, guidance, wisdom, and prosperity and the things of God in those moments more than we want God himself. In those moments, we think and act like those are the things we need to get through the times of crisis. Eight, out, eight or nine or 10 out of 10 times, we look to these things more than the presence of God. We look to these things more than God himself. But we see Joseph, he does the opposite. He's sustained, not by his things, not by his success, not by his sorrows, not by the people around him, but he's sustained ultimately by the presence of God. And so our roadmap for today, our time in the word is we're gonna just look at Joseph's success, his temptation, and his suffering. 
work through the passage, we'll work through those three things. Um, and ask kind of along the way, how, how should we be sustained by the presence of God in those things? How should we be sustained by the presence of God in our own successes, in our own temptations, and in our own sufferings? Let's look at success first. And before we dive too deeply into success, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture. Right, Joseph, he's still enslaved here. Like the, the first, you know, four to five verses, it kind of reads like Joseph is having a massive amount of success, which he is, but let's not forget that he's still enslaved. Right, he's still... Uh, forcefully being, being, he's being forced to serve someone else. And I think given the opportunity, he would pick up and go home in a heartbeat, right? Back to his dad, back to his family, maybe not back to his brothers. I wouldn't blame him for that. Back to his dad, right? He's, he's his dad's favorite son. But given the circumstances, he does quite well. Verse two literally says, he became a successful man, right? Why? Because the Lord was with him. Joseph kind of climbed the ladder, if you will. Right, through good and noticeable work, Potiphar, the man who bought him, got a glimpse of the success Joseph was having. And eventually he, he kind of, the text says that Potiphar made him his own attendant and then eventually that Potiphar uh, entrusted him with his entire household, with leadership over his entire house. And now that's no small thing. Right, I have to imagine Potiphar probably didn't have, you know, my apartment, two bed, uh, 800 square foot in Brookline type of house, right? This is an officer of Pharaoh. And so he's probably got a lot going on in his home. There's a lot of people coming and going. There's probably some people that are under Joseph that Joseph is in charge of. And so this is no small thing, right? For Joseph to be thrown into the pit and then later eventually kind of have this rise, though he is still enslaved, but kind of have this rise to success, this rise to leadership, if you will. And through it all, Joseph stays faithful to the Lord. And how do we know that? Well, at the height of his success, temptation comes along and he stays strong. And in his response to temptation, which we'll look at in a minute, he points back to God and God alone for his success. And it's a refreshing uh, uh, picture of how people handle success because I'm sure all of us can think about people in our lives or in our world who they experience success on some level whether it's just simply fame or um, Christian leaders or well-known pastors or CEOs, athletes, influencers, you name it, they experience success, and what do they do? A lot of times they trip up and some kind of failure or some kind of sin or some kind of scandal happens. We see people experience success and they somehow kind of succumb to it or succumb to something that causes them to sin and trip up. Now, I would argue, interestingly, it's not inherently the success itself that the people achieve, achieve, and then that's the thing that kind of pulls them away. I actually think it's the illusion of self-sufficiency that comes along with success. Heightened, overly successful self-sufficiency that screams, look how good I am, or look what I've done. In a place like Boston, a congregation like ours, we have a lot of successful people, whether it's academically, vocationally, financially, relationally. Right? Many of us in this room have experienced success in those kind of areas. And what comes along with that is the long, slow drift away from God more often than not. The long, slow drift away from acknowledging his presence, of forgetting God. Forgetting that what you have, that what you have is for God and God alone. That what you've been given has been given to you for the glory of God and not the glory of yourself. You have what you have for the good of God's kingdom, not the good of your own kingdom. 
It's so easy for us to forget that. And we talk about you know, deconstruction and, and people falling away from the faith when, when things get bad. But what's interesting, if you look at scripture, there's a lot of people that sin and fall away in success as well. Whether it's David, Solomon, Saul, Judas, any of the judges, take your pick. And so maybe some of us in, the room, in this room need to be more diligent in times of success than in times of suffering. We need to be more diligent in acknowledging and soaking and basking in the presence of God in times of plenty more than in times of scarcity. I'm not saying don't be successful. Right? I'm not saying don't excel at academics or your work or relationships. relationships. I'm not even saying like don't build a platform. But what I am saying is stay in the presence of God. Deuteronomy of all places in the Bible. Deuteronomy says this, as God's people are about to enter the promised land. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And your successes, and your wealth, and your intelligence, and your status, and your relationships, don't forget that it wasn't you. At the end of the day, it wasn't you. It was the presence of the Lord that got you there. And so, with Joseph, we see the God who was with him, who granted him success. We also see, in a very detailed way, God with Joseph and Joseph's temptations. He, in a way that is commendable, maybe, maybe in like the first time in Genesis so far, in a way that's commendable, he stays, he stays the course and shows us a way to fight temptation that we should quite honestly replicate. And when we read verses seven through nine, his response to Potiphar's wife, we see why. Seven through nine, I'm gonna read these again. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In other words, recapping all that we said, just said, Joseph says, All that I am, all that I have, all that's been put under my leadership is from God. How then could I betray such a God? You see, Joseph seems to understand that, that though Potiphar has empowered him with uh, leadership and all these things, it's ultimately from God, and therefore to sin against that would be a sin against God. He understood that a sin wouldn't just be against Potiphar. It wouldn't just be against Potiphar's wife. It wouldn't just be himself. It would be a sin against God. I've said this before, but other characters of Genesis have given us kind of a master class on how to be stupid or how to sin or how to lie. But Joseph, Joseph, refreshingly, gives us a master class on how to fight temptation. It would be remiss if we didn't talk about that, if we didn't spend kind of the bulk of our sermon in that. It's not a detour at all, but it's really just a very practical, here's a way that you in your own life can fight temptation. Just a couple of observations. Um, many of these are from Alistair Begg, who's a pastor. Um, he noted five things about Joseph's response to temptation, his resistance to temptation. He notes that it's decisive, it's principled, 
It's unyielding, it's practical, and it's ruthless. Decisive, principled, unyielding, practical, and ruthless. Decisive, look at the beginning of verse eight. Potiphar begs Joseph to sleep with her. The text says, quite simply, but he refused. He was decisive in response to temptation. He didn't entertain the idea in any sense. He didn't uh, say, well, you know, this might make sense. He didn't kind of try to twist it in his mind like so many of us do. We find reasons and excuses that we think are good to sin. He didn't ask the question, well, let's figure out how far is too far. Which if you're asking that question, you've probably gone too far. He didn't count the cost before deciding. He just outright refused. And so some of us, we need to be more decisive against sin. Right? Don't entertain the thought. Don't think twice when the opportunity presents itself. Whether it's that website or that conversation or that drink, just be decisive and say no to sin. Secondly, he's principled. We already considered his response, right, and how unprincipled he was sinning against God. He was a principled man who, in this scenario, who knew what was right and he knew what was wrong, and he did what was right. Which also, to his credit, everything in this story is moving towards them sleeping together. As weird as that sounds, if we were watching this unfold like a movie, if, that, if we hit the point where Potiphar asks or presents the opportunity, or Potiphar's wife, excuse me, uh, presents the opportunity, we would say that kind of like, if that happened, that would make sense in the story. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it should happen, but it wouldn't surprise us. Right, you read between the lines too, and Potiphar's wife is, is likely a little neglected to some extent. On top of this, some commentaries note that it was possible that Potiphar took some uh, vow of celibacy and now this young, attractive man shows up at her house every day. They're alone. You can see how the story moves toward this happening in a way that is not surprising to us that if it did happen. But Joseph was principled and he knew it was right and he knew it was wrong. He did what was right. Third, he's unyielding. Look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her. I'm sure all of us have been in scenarios where we resisted temptation the first time. We resisted temptation the second time. Maybe even the third time. The fourth time we gave in. Do what you need to do to remain unyielding against temptation, whether that's asking someone in your CG to be on call when you face great temptation, to pray with you, right? Or making sure you're not at home when you know you're gonna be alone and at certain times tempted to do things you've struggled with in the past. Do what you need to do to be unyielding in your fight against sin and temptation. Fourth, he's practical. The end of the verse, verse 10 again. He would not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. The man probably knows his limits. Right? He knows that the closer you get to fire, whether it's sexual sin or otherwise, the closer you get, the more likely you are to get burned. So he creates practical barriers. He won't lie beside her, which seems really obvious, <laughs> given what's going on. But then he says he won't be around her physically, not even like a sexual sense. Right? He's going out of his way to practically avoid temptation. 
And so, to be honest, I know plenty of guys and girls uh, at this church over the years that have struggled with like, pornography or some sort of sexual sin, and it's gotten so bad that we've been like, dude, like, what does it look like for you to give up your computer for a season, for you to give up your smartphone for a season? Like, if you take sin seriously and you take the holiness of God seriously, what does it look like for you to get rid of those things? And if you need to do work, you go down to Boston Public Library. And now our gut reaction to all that, most of our gut reaction would be like, isn't that a little much? I think that points to us not seeing sin for what it is. Get practical in your fight against sin. Lastly, he was ruthless. Look at verse 12. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He fled. Scripture, uh, above all else, when it talks about temptation, tells us to flee. Paul, three or four times in his letters, twice to Timothy, once to the Corinthians, says, flee sin, flee temptation. Don't stand and look. Don't look from a distance. Do you know what you do when you flee something? You turn around and you run the other way and you don't look back. Flee. So do what you need to do to flee temptation, to get out of those scenarios. Turn your back and don't ever turn back around. Flee. As an aside, since sexual sin is just such a big part of this passage and it's really pervasive in our culture today, um, if, if this is an area of struggle for you and you don't have people around you that know that or that are holding you accountable or that are talking to you about that, I would really encourage you, find someone in your community group that you trust, open up to them, talk to them. If you're not in a community group, come talk to me, come talk to one of the leaders. We'll get you connected with the right people. Fight that sin in your life. Don't go about it alone. You have to do what you need to do to flee temptation, to flee those sins in your life. And ultimately, don't forget what undergirds all of those things. Right, you can have all the strategies in the world, all the practical steps, all the thoughts in your mind, but it's God and his presence that delivers you from sin. Take tangible steps, yes, but don't let those things become what you cling to rather than the presence of God. You can go a whole life avoiding sexual sin but also be extremely far away from the presence of God. At the end of the day, Joseph resisted temptation and clung to God's presence and saw God's presence as sweeter than sin. The last thing we see is, is the power of God's presence in Joseph's sufferings. The power of God's presence in Joseph's sufferings. Now, to be honest, um, like his whole ordeal could kind of be described as like suffering, right, from the pit all the way to still being kind of enslaved. And his dad thinks he's dead, but... Again, he becomes somewhat successful in Potiphar's house and, and gains some traction. And he's maybe starting to feel a little bit better about some things. But he's put back in prison again. After Potiphar's wife hear, after Potiphar hears his wife's lie. And I have to imagine that's kind of discouraging. That's kind of discouraging. But our passage goes out of the way to say that in the middle of all this, that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and favor. 
that the Lord, or that Joseph was in prison, yet the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love and favor. In other words, the love of God for you is not contingent on what's going on in your life. And that's one of the hardest lessons we'll ever learn, and I don't think we'll ever fully learn it. That even in moments of darkness and deep suffering, God is present and loves you deeply. And in fact, it's God's presence and God's love that actually enables us to get through those times in the first place. But yet, like I said at the beginning, it's so funny, in those moments, we tend to run from his presence. We understandably ask why. Like, why God? And then we distance ourselves. This makes me think of, honestly, just the child who's afraid of the dark, right? He's crying in bed. What's gonna be more comforting to that child? The parent comes into the room, flips on the light switch, and then runs back away and slams the door shut. Or the parent comes into the room, picks up the child in their arms, and says, even when it's still dark, and says, don't worry, I'm here. What's more comforting? From experience, I can tell you it's the second one. Not that I'm afraid of the dark, but my daughter. That's so often what God does for us. We so desperately want him to come into the room and turn off the light and then kind of leave so we can get back to what we're doing. We focus so much on the solutions to sufferings and problems we face, but we really need to be focusing on his presence. But when you think about it, aren't you glad that it's God's presence that's eternally offered to us, not God's solutions that are, is eternally offered to us? So the question still remains, though, like, what is God doing here? Like, Joseph, this is kind of, this is weird, man. Like, your brothers, you throw you into a pit, and, and you know, you, you are purchased, and, you're, you're, and then purchased again, and now you're a slave in this house, and now you're in prison again. Like, what? Like, it's understandable to ask, what is God doing in the life of Joseph? What is God doing in your life amidst your successes, your temptations, and your sufferings? Well, if you continue to focus on the presence of God in those things, he's quite simply making you look more like Jesus. He's bringing you closer to the image of his son. He's bringing you into greater intimacy with himself. Micah Edmondson, who's a pastor, he has some good reflections on this, and he points out that Joseph is potentially, in all of Genesis, the best type of Christ. What do I mean by this? Well, Joseph never looked more like Jesus than when, as his father's favorite son, was portrayed by his brothers. Joseph never looked more like Jesus than when he avoided the lure of temptation. Joseph never looked more like Jesus than when he was humbled to the place of a servant. Here's the difference, though. Those things were forced upon Joseph against his will. But Jesus... He does these things by choice for you. He does these things willingly so that you can experience the presence of God, so that you can experience the joy of God even in dark moments. And so friends, don't be mistaken. Your suffering, your pain, your struggles, they're not pointless. They're making you more like Jesus. They're pointing you more towards the presence of God. Don't be mistaken of thinking also that silence or struggles negate the presence of God in the first place. In Christ, you always have the reality of God's presence with you. You just lose the awareness of it. Whether it's sin or darkness 
or you just take your eyes off of Jesus, 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 Cheese nips. The presence of God is with you always. It's just your awareness of it that changes. The presence of God is with you in your success, in your temptations, in your sufferings. And there is power in that presence for you to deal with whatever you're facing today. The good, the bad, the ugly. Cling to the presence of God. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your presence. That in Christ, through the death, the life, death, resurrection of your son, that we have unlimited access to you, that you are always present with us. We always have the possibility of experiencing joy, fellowship, and communion with you. God, be with us always. May we always be aware of your presence. In your name we pray and ask these things. Amen.